subject of God love is an easy one. Well, it's not not easy to preach on, but it's an easy one to think of and and uh, appreciate it and enjoy it. Well, we can't appreciate it like it really is, is what it, Kenny so clearly stated. Uh, we don't have a clue how much God loves us, uh, but he, he he laid out so well. I don't want to duplicate. He loves us so much that even we can't get beyond that love. And sometimes we try. Sometimes we all do things we shouldn't do. And, you know, there's people in the world that believe that, you know, you can be a, a child of God and then you can fall from grace and you can fall out of God's love. Well, <coughs> you know, I, I've had to, uh, he, he disciplines us when, uh, and he only disciplines those that he loves. He still tells us that in Scripture. But, you know, I, I, I've, I've had two, I've got two children, had two children, two little there's times when I got ferociously mad at them to try to correct them and get them to do the right things. And, and even thinking about some of those things, I can get mad again today. But it had absolutely no effect on my love for them. And, and we're told in Isaiah that even though, you know, the strongest love we know of is a mother for her child, that's the strongest love we can imagine. God says his love is even greater than that. There are some mothers who will forsake their children, but the Lord says, I will never forsake thee. We know he gets unhappy with us because of our sin, and when he does, he chases us and corrects us, but you're not going to fall out of his love uh, as a child of God. So I, I appreciate that very morning. I, I need a refresher. Preachers need refreshing on that basic stuff like all of us do. What's on my mind this morning is a simple story you all know, uh, and I actually spoke on this story. I was trying to remember this morning when it was on my, got on getting on my mind the last day or so. I spoke on this, I believe from this pulpit, probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago. Uh, <coughs> but it's on my mind again today, and it's one you're all familiar with. It's in John chapter 2. A lot of stories in the Bible that, you know, you ask the so-called man on the street, you know, what do you know about the Bible? You know, may not know anything. Tell me something that you recognize about the Bible. You know, and it's always, well, Jesus walked on water, or Moses divided the sea. One of them they nearly always mention is, Jesus turned water into wine. And that's the subject I want to talk about this morning. It's in chapter 2. It's only 11 verses of chapter 2. And it's a very simple story. It's so simple that we really don't even need to talk about it a whole lot because everybody knows it. I mean, you know it, so we don't preach on it a whole lot. Like I said, I usually, if I find a subject that works, uh, I may speak on it several times. Uh, I, I spoke on that last year, somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago. I can't remember exactly, but it's about the story in chapter 2 of John where Jesus went to a wedding, and at that wedding we know he changed water into wine. Now, John is probably my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, John is written different. You know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels as we call them. The first three are more historical, synoptic as they call them. John's is a little different. John is clearly, he's writing that to those he knows are believers. If you're reading this and following it, it's not because you're a dead alien sinner, as they say, and God, but you're a child of God. You may not understand it, but it makes sense to you and it strikes your heart, resonates in your heart. Uh, John is one of those guys that has the ability to write something very simple and very clear, turn water into wine. I understand that. It always has a very clear meaning. Even the children can understand it. But it also has a deeper meaning that when you see it, you go, oh, wow. It really resonates in your heart. This is one of those stories, I hope, that if the Lord will be with us, that we can talk about it and convey it. 
this is a story about a wedding, and there's not a lot of details. You know, I, I grew up in a newspaper family, lost my fingers in a newspaper press when I was two years old, and grown up in a family, and I went to Texas Tech and majored in journalism, and I've been editor of a couple of papers and a reporter for a number of years, and so in doing that, you have to write about a lot of different things. You have to write obituaries, you have to write news, and car wrecks, as Brother Kenny mentioned, and all criminals in the end. One of the things that I just hated writing about was weddings. Uh, it drove me batty, you, because I'd try to write a wedding, and I'd write something real short, and my dad say, no, you're writing this wedding for the bride's mother. And so you've got to write all the details. You've got to tell all about her dress and her veil and her gown and the cake and how the decorations were. You've got to list all of them. And I hated that stuff. It was, you know, to me, just unnecessary. <coughs> so, you know, weddings are something everybody wants to know a lot of details about. John doesn't give details unless he thinks they're important. So let's read. I'm just going to read through this first of all. Let's get a, a grip on what, what he's saying here, and then we'll come back and talk about it. John chapter 2, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now, Jesus had just been to Galilee, and he's on his third day there. His first two days, uh, he had met with John the Baptist and was baptized by him, and the second day he met a bunch of his disciples, uh, Peter and Andrew and John and James and, and uh, Nathaniel and uh, Philip. And we learned that in chapter, uh, over in chapter 1, primarily of John. And it closes out that way about Nathaniel and, and Philip having a discussion with Christ. So, so we're in chapter 2, and this is the third day. He was in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. His mother was there at this wedding. A lot of people speculate that his father, Joseph, had died by this time, and perhaps Mary may have moved there, and that kind of makes sense to me, but those are not details we have. Verse 2, And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Jesus was invited to come to the wedding. Now, many of you know, last summer... My son got married. Got married, and we had the wedding. And, uh, too many details, too much stuff going on. I'm glad I didn't have to write a story about my own son's wedding because we just had so much stuff going on. We had to decide who to invite. And first of all, we sent out, you know, the uh, save the date cards. To do that, you've got to have a mailing list. So we're, you know, pooling everybody. You know, Elisa's parents, we had to get their parents and get all the people they wanted to invite. You know, and they were hitting me up for addresses and to find out all from my family and the church or whoever to send out these things to and make a wedding list. So you, you got to invite people to the wedding. It says here, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus was invited to the wedding. How important is it to invite Jesus to the wedding? Do we think when we're inviting, having a wedding, do we think about putting Jesus on the invitation list? Now, we know that Jesus can show up to any wedding he wants to, okay? He can come anytime he gets ready, and we hope he's there at many of them, most of them, in fact. But how important it is for the husband and wife to be, how important is it that they sit down and invite Jesus to the wedding? You, to you hold hands, you sit down, or you drop on a knee or something, and you talk to each other, and you pray, and you say, and you ask Jesus to come to the wedding. Not only come to wedding, but to be a part of our lives. That's an important thing that we see here taking place. Jesus and his disciples, but Jesus was invited to the wedding. And we're about to see that when Jesus shows up at a wedding, good things can take place. And the bride and groom get credit for a lot that they didn't have anything to do with. So Jesus comes and helps them 
you know, it looks like it's just a, uh, a matter of convenience or something, the way this turns out. Jesus did it, but the bride and groom get credit for it. Jesus can make good things happen in a wedding, also in a marriage. We need to invite him into our weddings and into our marriages. He was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, what that means is they ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. They were needing wine. They were in need of wine. And, of course, the wine was a big deal. And back in that day, weddings were big celebrations. Sometimes they'd last for days. That was part of the, of the nuptial agreement. Uh, they usually got engaged for a year, <coughs> and then they were uh, uh, had the ceremony, and they were lasted for several days. They were having this big celebration, <coughs> and they ran out of wine. And the mother said, and Jesus' mother said unto him, they have no wine. Now, she dismissed it. She, you know, but she says, you know, Jesus, they're out of wine. And that's a big deal at these weddings. And it's fixed to be a big embarrassment to the groom for you to run out of food. It's like you invited these people, and you got to feed them. And you run out of food. You run out of wine. So it's kind of embarrassing. What are you going to do? Well, first of all, Jesus makes a point here that's real important. He looks and he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. He said, I, you know, I haven't showed my glory yet. I haven't showed who I am. I haven't showed that I'm a son of God. I haven't showed that I can do miracles. I haven't told anybody yet. First of all, he said, woman. Now, many of you knew my mother. She's been dead a number of years ago, but my mother was one of the best children. Do you know what would happen to me if I'd have called my mother woman? Hey, woman. <coughs> uh, <laughs> I'd have heard, heard more about it after that. Well, this was different back then. Jesus is not disrespecting his mother by saying that. But he's, what he's, he's letting her know and letting everybody else know things have changed. He is not a respecter of persons. He's now about to show that he's the son of God. <coughs> we don't talk, he, he doesn't talk about people being his brothers or his mothers or his fathers. You know, he talks about his father, of course, in heaven. But he doesn't talk about, he's not a respecter of persons. He treats everybody alike. All his children are alike. You know, they all become all one in Christ. Jew, Gentile, bond, free, slave, or free, or male or female. They're all alike to him. And that's what he's letting us know here. Not only that, he's letting us know and letting everybody know he's the one that does the miracles. He's the one that we look to. He's the one that we ask for, not his mother. He's making a separation here between he and his mother that is very important doctrinally. So he said, my hour's not come. But then his mother, she understands. She's not offended because verse 5 says, his mother saith to the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. I need this lesson myself really bad. I go to the Lord and I need something and I'll tell the Lord, you know, I want you to fix this problem I've got with Brother Kenny. I'm making this up. But I've got the problem with Brother Kenny. I want you to go help me fix it, Lord. And here's how I want you to do it. Make him straight. Straighten him out. And he'll treat me better. You know, I, I tell the Lord what I want. <coughs> now, his mother has good advice here. It's just, he, he understands the problem. Now, let him do it, and you do what he tells you to do. You know, sometimes I want to tell the Lord how to fix my problem. If I could have fixed them, I'd have already had them fixed. We need to go to the Lord in prayer and explain the problem to him and say, Lord, help us. That's all you have to do. He already knows what you need. <coughs> but we need to take the advice here of the mother that says, whatever he says you do, do it. Verse 6, And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing three, two to three firkins apiece. 
a firkin is about seven to nine gallons, not exact gallons. And so if you have six of them sitting there and each one of them has two to three firkins in it apiece, you're talking somewhere between 100 and 150 gallons total, all these six water pots together. And Jesus said unto them, to the servants, Fill the water pots with water, and the servants filled them up to the brim. They leveled them off with water. And then he said to them, Draw out now. Take a dipper and draw it out and fill up the wine glasses is what he's telling them. Draw it out and bear it into the governor of the feast. Take it to the head of the table, to the person that's in charge, the master of ceremony of the feast. And they did. They took it to him. And the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was. Uh, he didn't know where it came from, but he tasted this wine. It says, but the servants which uh, drew the water knew. They knew that they put water in there, and now it's wine. The governor didn't know, and the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. He didn't call. He didn't know Jesus had done it, but he called the groom up. And he said, he talked to the groom, and he said, he's, he's supposed to be providing all the food and the uh, alcohol, the content. And he said unto him, every man at the beginning to set forth good wine, and then when the men have well drunk, then that which is worse. In other words, feed them the good wine first. You know, we, we're apparently, by saying this, he knows this wedding festival is, is a good ways into it, probably getting close to the end. He said, what you do is you give the good wine first, and then when you get everybody drunk, then you bring out the old rot gut stuff because they don't know the difference. They're drunk. And actually, he said, everybody does that. He said, they give you the good wine first, and then... <coughs> you give them the bad wine because they're, they're drunk now and they won't know the difference. He said, that's what everybody else does. He says, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Tells you the quality of the wine that Jesus has just made. It's so good, even after drinking, that everybody can recognize this is excellent wine, perfect wine he's made. <coughs> Verse 11, this was the beginning of miracles that Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, first miracle he performed, and his disciples believed on him. And that's the details. You know, like I said, we need weddings, we want details. John doesn't give us many details, but this is where Jesus changed, changed water into wine. It was good wine. Nobody knew it except his disciples and the servants. Nobody knew what had taken place. And the groom got credit for it. He gave the credit to the young man who didn't have a clue either where it came from and he got credit for it that's all the details that we have <coughs> but remember i said earlier that john doesn't give us details unless they're important he says here at the end the closing line of verse 11 and his disciples believed on him what do we care about that this is not about the disciples this is about the wedding and changing water into wine Disciples have not played any role in this. We haven't talked about disciples except in the opening verse when we said Jesus was called and his disciples. We go through this little story here, and at the end it says, and his disciples believed on him. I think they already believed on him. They were following him. He makes it a point of saying, and now they believed on him. What I think just happened is they've just become born again. God has just regenerated them. You know, here in chapter 2, as, as Kenny said, all our love comes from God. He originates everything. You know, we don't love him. He loves us first before we can even love him. Go into chapter 3, the next chapter, we're not going to go there. 
Because when we talk about born again, that's one of the things we talk about so much in this world is you better go get yourself born again. If you're not born again, go get yourself born again. And everybody says that needs to go to chapter 3 and read. That's the only place it is. It's the only place it talks about how you get born again. And if you read that, you find out that man has no control over being born again. It's totally in the hands of God, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is what makes us born again. You know, we have great examples in the Bible. John the Baptist. When did he become born again? While he was in his mother's womb. Did he decide to accept God while he was in his mother's womb? Did he decide to cry? Did he come forth and ask to be baptized? No, he's still in his mother's womb. Tells us he was full of the Holy Spirit. The whole world agrees he was born again while he was still inside his mom. Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus. When did he become born again? We know that he tried to destroy the church. He, went, he was a, a great Jew, and he believed in God clearly, but he tried to destroy this new church. He went out and heard preaching. Did he hear good preaching? Yeah, he heard preaching a lot, and his goal was to arrest. Everybody believed in this Christ fellow. When they stoned Stephen, he was there and helped them kill a man in the name of God. <clears throat> you know, sometimes we see people that say they believe in God and they're following God, but we learn that they may not really be children of God. There's more evil and damage done in this world by people who say they're acting in the name of God <coughs> that it's so unbelievable. And we're told that even over a little further in John chapter six, John chapter 16 and John when Jesus is saying this to his people. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth uh, it doeth God a service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. They're doing things in the name of God, but yet they don't know me and they don't know God. And then we know he, talk, he tells us in there that, you know, the only way you know uh, only God knows the Son and the Son knows the God in them to whom he revealeth. God has to reveal himself to you. Jesus has to reveal himself before you know God. He does that, and in, in, in the primary way he does that is when he makes you born again, regenerates you, calls you. And over there in chapter 3, the chapter behind this one, he says, it's like the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. You can't see it coming. You can't see it going. You can hear it. You can see the effects of it. I can see the trees blow, but you can't see it. You don't know when it's coming or when it's going. That's how you're born again. The same way everybody's born the same way again by the Holy Spirit. They can't see it coming. We can't see it coming. You can't see it going. You can see it after it's over. You can see the effects of somebody. But God is the one that makes you born again. People that say you should go get yourself born again need to go read chapter 3. Read chapter 3, the first eight verses. When Nicodemus has this conversation. And Jesus says, it's like being born naturally. I'm putting this in my own words. But it's like being born naturally. Do you control when you're born naturally? Did you tell your mother and dad you want to be born on this date? No, you had no control over that. That's physical birth. He compares physical birth and spiritual birth. Spiritual birth the same way. You've been born once naturally. Now you need to be born again spiritually. And that happens only when God puts himself in your heart, in your mind. And over there in Hebrews chapter 8, he says, I have a new covenant with my people now in which every man shall not teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord. It's not our job to go teach people to, to know the Lord. He said, I, God, says, that's my job. I'll put it in their hearts and in their minds. I'll make them a people to me as their God. And, you know, he says, and I'll forget their sins forever. 
Brother Kenny covered that about he's forgiven us, getting our sins. He separates us from the east from the west, our sins from us. God puts himself in you. This is a story here about rebirth here, about new blood. When he says this in here and his disciples believed on him, I firmly believe that's when these disciples became born again. That's what he's talking about. Let's go back there. I said there's very few details. But look at verse 6. And there were six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Who cares? He took some jars and took some mason jars and filled them up full of water and turned them into wine. That's all we need to know, isn't it? If this story is about water to wine, why does he go into great detail? We don't know anything about the wedding. We don't know what the gown wore, what the groom, what gown she wore, the bride wore, or the groom. Heck, we don't know the wedding cake. We don't know any of the details. But suddenly we get these old water pots. These were water pots, and it says, after the manner of purifying the Jews, what we read in Mark 7, we're told the Jews didn't eat unless they washed a lot. Back in the Old Testament, you know, you had to keep saying you had to try to be clean, clean and unclean. Now, that he, the Lord meant that spiritually, but they took it physically. You had to wash all the time. If you had somebody that was unclean, breathe on you. You had to get it. You had to go pure through a purification deal. And they took it literally, and they extended it far behind what the Lord ever intended it for be, but they would wash. They'd wash themselves all the time. So anytime they had a meal, or especially a big banquet like this, they'd have these big water pots, all of them. I said, you know, somewhere between 100 and 150 gallons. They'd fill them up full of water so they could wash a lot. Everybody could wash. They'd have a, a quart, then they'd have to wash again. You know, sometimes you go to a nice restaurant, and they'll give you these little finger bowls. You know, well, this is more than that. They washed every time. And that's what this manner of the purifying of the Jews was. They had these water pots set there. They're only used for water. They were only used for washing or bathing, as I like to say. I got a bathtub I bathe in. Am I going to go drink wine out of it? So Jesus took these six water pots of stone. We get these great details in verse 6. Six water pots of stone. After the manner of the purifying of the Jews, these water pots of, of stone, they're not man-made. They're not ceramic, then say. They're not made out of wood. They're not buckets. These are carved. You know, I forget. Carved out of stone. These are made natural. These were natural earthen water pots. <coughs> not man-made. These are natural stone water pots. And that's what they were used for. And they were large, very large, big, big, you know, big pots we have today. But these are all man-made. You take them and go in the stone and you carve them out of stone. That's what these were. Six water pots of stone, natural made, <coughs> earthen vessels, and they were used for cleaning the Jews, containing two to three firkins apiece. They were all different sizes and shapes. What's this talking about? Six water pots. Why six? Why do, uh, who cares? All they know is all, this is supposed to be about water in the wine. Who cares what size these water pots are? Who cares that there's pot six of them? Well, how many disciples were there that day? How many disciples were told that his disciples were affected by this? They believed in it. How many disciples were there that day? Well, there was Peter and Andrew and John and James and Philip and Nathaniel. Now, I'm out of fingers, so I hope that's all. Six disciples were with him that day. Six water pots of stone. Six natural earthen vessels that had known nothing except Jewish laws, except being used under the old Jewish rules and regulations. That's all these six disciples. They were all Jews. All they knew, knew before that was Jewish law. 
He's about to change all of that. This is his first miracle. First thing he does, he starts with his disciples. He changes them from the inside out. He puts his laws into their mind and into their hearts. He changes the inside of them just like he changed this water to wine. That's what's taking place here. You remember when Jesus performed the miracle on the mountainside when he had 5,000 people he fed with a few loaves of bread and fishes? And when they finished it, you know, there was some left over. He took these and blessed them, and, and it grew, and he fed this whole 5,000 people. Then he told his 12 disciples with him, go pick up the extra pieces in these 12 baskets. I already gave away my deal. At 12 apostles, how many baskets filled up? 12. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Coincidence, I guess. Is it a coincidence that there were six disciples there that day in these six water pots that the same, the same way were there? He took these <coughs> Peter and Andrew, John and James, and Philip and Nathaniel that are mentioned in, in the verses ahead of this who were traveling with him that day. And this is the, the, the story at the end is, and his disciples believed on him. Look what happened also this day. Brother Kenny was talking about the doctrine of election and how <coughs> you know there's a lot of people that are elected or children of God that may not even know it. Everybody that was invited to the wedding got the good wine. Everybody that was invited got wine. <coughs> Tasted wine. So everybody that's invited enjoyed the benefit. So there's a lot of people that are elected by God that may not even know God's name, but they've got him in their heart. They may not know the name of Jesus or God, but I feel different. You could, my dad used to say you could go into the deepest jungles of Africa and step off airplane and go into the jungle and maybe one guy would slit your throat but another guy would help mend you up and take care of you because he had compassion for you in his heart because Jesus had put himself in his heart they may not be learned they may not have read the Bible but they're children of God everybody invited got the good wine but it says who's the one that knew what was going on the servants his disciples and the servants. The more you read the Bible, the more you study, the more you come to church, hear Brother Kenny speak, we're going to know more and more. We're going to have the knowledge that Peter says we should add to our faith. Take the faith that God gave you. God gave you faith. I've had people tell me, if you don't have faith, you better go get it. Well, go read the very first verse in Second Peter, and it says you got you have the same faith that we got. You got it from God and Jesus Christ. You didn't get it yourself. You got it given to you by Him. <coughs> you take that, by that you get faith, and when you take faith and add to it your knowledge and all those other things that Peter tells you in Second Peter, then you're going to become fruitful. You're going to grow. You're going to become more secure. Brother Kenny said we don't have a doctrine of fear, and Apostle Paul tells us that in Second Timothy, I believe, verse 7. He didn't give us a doctrine of fear. The Lord didn't teach us, teach us that we got to be afraid. If you don't do this, you know, you're going to go to hell. How many times have you heard that? You know, if you don't hear the gospel preached, if you don't believe the gospel preached, if you don't accept it, if you don't confess, if you don't get baptized, if you don't uh, join the church and get baptized, if you don't go feed the sick, feed the, the hungry and, and visit the sick and visit those in prison and clothe the naked, if you don't do all those things, <coughs> that's works. We're to do those works, but we do those after he's given us faith. We do those after he's loved us. After he's put himself into our heart. And that's what's taking place here. We know that, like I, I pointed out that uh, over in uh, Apostle 
Peter tells us, not Apostle Peter, I'm sorry, Apostle, we learned that Jesus, I'll, I'll get it right in a minute, that I pointed out over in Acts, John 16, that there's a lot of people who do things in the name of God, <coughs> and they do evil in the names of God, but you, Jesus says, they don't know me nor my Father. You don't know the Father until the Son reveals him to you. When, you re- when he's revealed him to you, it's when you become a born-again Christian, when you become regenerated, when you become recalled again as they say <coughs> Jesus' miracles are behind the scenes he does them in such a manner he doesn't try to take credit for it many times when he performed a miracle he would tell the people well don't go talk about this people generally would they would violate his instructions he didn't do stuff to get attention he did stuff to manifest his glory and the things he did for other people uh, he did it and it looked like a matter of convenience to everybody else the bridegroom and the and the bride at this wedding, they got the great benefit of his miracles. They didn't know how it worked. And they didn't remember how it happened. You know, a lot of times we will go to the Lord in prayer and we'll ask for something. You know, and a year later, I'm going to go, you know, ask him for something in prayer. And he never answered that. But that problem has gone away. It's just a matter of circumstance. Very convenient, you know. Uh, just happens as a matter of, of consequence. How many times... We go to the Lord and pray, and we pray for some things, and they get better, and we fail to go back and thank the Lord for providing those things. The Lord, many times, I, I had a next-door neighbor one time that she was worried. She had a child. She didn't have any money, and, and uh, my wife and I were visiting with her one time, and she said, you know, I prayed to the Lord. I don't know how I'm going to feed my child this week. And she said, and I prayed about it. And I went to the mailbox, and there I got a deposit back from a utility company that I was not expecting. And it was enough to allow me to go buy diapers and baby food and food for myself. And she said she gave God the credit for that, as we should. He'll make it happen where nobody sees it, and perhaps but you. You know, you give him the glory in public, he'll give you, and you give him the glory in private. You thank him in private, and you ask for it in private, and he'll give you the response in public. I appreciate your kind attention, and my prayers, the Lord will richly bless you.